0: unraveling the true crime mysteries that keep you up at night. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air?
1: For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. There were two more murders 15 miles away. police arrived, (laughs) they found the telephones and electricity lines.
0: We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Of Why do killers choose their victims? For some, it is a person they know, a person who they think deserves their revenge. For others, it's the weak, the ones they think they can overpower. And for some, like the one in our story today, it's simply because they don't think these victims will be missed. On February 5th, 1973, a man was sentenced for what was characterized at the time as the most notorious crime in the U.S., a crime that, to this day, has an unknown victim count. So, if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Juan Vallejo Corona was born on February 7, 1934, in Jalisco, Mexico, and, at 16 years old, entered into the United States illegally. He quickly began looking for work and, for a time, picked fruits and vegetables in Imperial Valley for moving into Sacramento Valley and then to Yuba City, where his half-brother, Natividad, had been living for about 10 years. His brother helped him get a job at a local ranch, and after living in the area for only a few months, Juan met and married a woman named Gabriela in 1953. Though I could not find if or the circumstances of his divorce from his first wife, Juan married again in 1959 to a woman named Gloria and together they had four daughters. But before his second marriage, a devastating flood occurred in Yuba in December of 1955 that cost 74 people their lives and flooded 100,000 acres of land. This event seemed to trigger a mental breakdown in Juan, and on January 17, 1956, Natividad committed him to DeWitt State Hospital in Auburn, California. Officials there diagnosed him with schizophrenic reaction, paranoid type, and delivered 26 shock treatments over the course of three months, after which he was pronounced cured and released. When he left the hospital, he was deported back to Mexico. He returned to the U.S. legally in 1962, clean and sober and ready to start his life again. He became a licensed labor contractor and was charged with hiring the labor crews to work at the local fruit ranches. Unfortunately, he was sent back to DeWitt in 1970 and by 1971, he applied for welfare and was denied. But he kept doing the best he could. He had a wife and four girls to provide for and pushed himself and others to get work done. He was known to be a tough employer and was harsh and sometimes violent with the workers, many of whom were homeless, alcoholics, older and generally unemployable. So Juan, despite how mean he could be, was giving them the second chance that no one else would, which is probably why they dealt with and failed to report his prison-like handling of their lives. These men were paid very little and lived, at Juan's insistence, on Sullivan Ranch where he controlled their food and shelter and used his power to satisfy his sexual sadistic impulses. And soon, those men started to disappear. This was common amongst migrant workers, and because most of these men were in the country illegally, if they had families, they were too scared of deportation to report their loved ones missing. Juan began using all of this to his advantage, and in most cases, made a little effort to hide evidence that connected him to the crimes, full well knowing they were going to likely go unreported. He began digging holes, sometimes days in advance, would pick his next victim, brutally rape and assault them, and then stab them to death. When he was done with their bodies, he would hack up their head with a machete and bury them right in those fruit ranches he worked for along Feather River. On May 19, 1971, a farmer who owned one of those fields noticed a freshly dug hole in his peach orchard. He thought nothing of it until he noticed that the very next day, it was filled with dirt. He called the police and, when they started digging, they unearthed a man's body. The body was later identified as Kenneth Whitaker, who was stabbed to death and had his face and skull ripped open by the blows of a machete. In Kenneth's pocket was a piece of gay literature, so police initially wrote the crime off as a sex crime. But four days later, a second grave was unearthed, yielding the body of Charles Fleming. Then another grave was found the next day, and then another, and another. In total, over the course of just nine days, investigators unearthed 25 bodies in the orchards before terminating the search on June 4th. All of the men were lying on their backs, arms above their heads, and shirts pulled up over their faces. Each had been sodomized, murdered, and then had their face hacked with a large, sharp blade. Out of the 25, only four were able to be identified. But in one of the graves was a man named Melford Sample, who had with him two meat receipts dated to March 21st and signed by a man named Juan V. Corona. And in another grave was a crumbled up bank deposit slip that had Juan's name and address on it. The evidence was enough to warrant some serious questioning. And on May 26th, 1971, police entered Juan's Yuba City home with a search warrant and some handcuffs in hand. In his home, they found two bloodstained knives, a machete, a gun, bloodstained clothing, and a ledger that contained 34 names and dates, seven of which were known victims. Juan entered a not guilty plea on June 2nd, 1971, just two days before the official search for victims had ended. Then on June 14th, Juan's public defender was replaced by a man named Richard Hawk, who offered his legal representation in exchange for exclusive literary and dramatic rights to Juan's story and the proceedings against him. Juan waived his attorney-client privilege and, without looking at his medical records, decided against having him plead not guilty by reason of insanity and fired the psychiatrists who were assigned to the case. His trial, which would later be referred to as an embarrassment on both sides, officially began on September 11, 1972. The jury selection alone took several months, and the trial itself took another three months. During this time, the prosecution misplaced evidence, forensic tests were delayed, and at one point, the prosecutor suggested that Juan's refusal to testify was proof that he was guilty. Juan denied culpability and was never called to testify, nor were there any defense witnesses in the trial. The jury deliberated for 45 hours and returned on January 18, 1973, with a guilty verdict on all 25 counts. On February 5, 1973, he was sentenced to 25 life sentences that must run concurrently with no chance of parole. Though the parole bit would later change, citing a section of the penal code. While in prison, Juan was stabbed 32 times after bumping into a fellow inmate and failing to say, Excuse me. He was then transferred to the correctional training facility in Soledad, California, where, less than a year later, Gloria asked for divorce, citing irreconcilable differences. On May 18, 1978, Juan Corona was granted a new trial based on his appeal for the writ of habeas corpus. According to his petition, his trial counsel did not do the, quote, requisite legal and factual investigation required and that his lawyer's request for publication rights as part of his legal fees was not allowed and caused a conflict between he and his client. The second trial began on February 22 1982, during which Juan's new lawyers presented a very different version of events. They said that the real murderer, was not Juan Corona, but his brother, Natividad. That Natividad was a known homosexual, which would have explained the rape and sexual assault the victim suffered from, and that he was accused of attacking a man at his cafe in Marysville. That this man was brutally attacked with a machete in the restroom of the restaurant, hacked in the head and face, all after rejecting his sexual advances." He won a lawsuit against Natividad, who then fled to Mexico instead of paying the legal fee and died eight years before his trial. This new trial, the one where they blamed a dead man, lasted seven months. On February 23, 1982, Juan was again convicted of all his charges and sent back to prison. According to the jury, the work ledger found in his home was enough evidence for them to find him guilty. After being denied parole eight times, Juan Corona died in prison at the age of 85 on March 4th, 2019. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on February 6th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there is always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.